scripture tonight is taken from the New Testament text of, uh, from the liturgy this week. It's Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Before we start, I just want to say thank you. I, I think a number of you here are you artists who blessed us this uh, Advent season with some wonderful uh, offerings. Thank you very much. Those have been very, very rich. Thank you. And I also just want to point some out. You, you know, we, uh, we have to turn this into a worship space every week. The other six days of the week, it's uh, something else. And um, last night, it was something else. And uh, last night someone doing the soundboard was drinking something else and um, spilled it all over the soundboard and <laughs> shut down all the sound. So all day today, uh, Jesse and Rocky and company have been rebuilding the whole soundboard from scratch so that we could have service tonight. And you'd be surprised how many Sundays that goes on. So if you see some of those folks, just uh, thank them for uh, the hard work that they do that we can come together and worship in a performance space where people spill beer on the keyboard <laughs> the night before. <laughs> Well, sometime maybe uh, 30 years after the Lord had gone back to, to be with the Father, Matthew, one of his disciples, uh, was led by the Holy Spirit to write a discipleship manual for a particular part of the church, the Jewish part of the church. And he had a couple of goals when he wrote that. One is he wanted to prove to these uh, new Jewish converts that Jesus really was a Jew and was the long-awaited Messiah that came from uh, King David. And so you see a lot of that in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, the first 17 verses are that long genealogy where essentially uh, the whole point is to say that this uh, baby Jesus comes through King David. Uh, and that's why Joseph marries Mary. But there was another uh, agenda that Matthew had in mind as he set out to write this discipleship manual. And remember, that's what the Gospels were. Uh, they were meant to be handed around to form the people of God after their Messiah. And the other thing that Matthew wanted to talk about was righteousness. Uh, that is a word that, that uh, maybe sounds kind of churchy to us today, kind of quaint. Um, but the idea was a life lived in conformity to God's will, to God's plan, to God's law. It's a word that you see a lot in the prophets in the Old Testament. God says that's the essence of true religion. I'll read you one. Uh, Hosea 10, 12. The prophet says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. 
And so one of the things that uh, Matthew wants to do is talk about what a righteous life looks like. And one of the ways he does that is by giving examples. And he scatters examples throughout the gospel. And one of the examples is Joseph. One of the reasons that Joseph is in this story is to show us what being a righteous man or a righteous woman looks like. And in the the older translations, in verse 19, it says he is a righteous man. Joseph, being a righteous man, did what he did. So, I want to take just a moment tonight to consider three characteristics of a righteous person. The first one we find in verses 18 to 19, we'll just put it like this. Joseph loves. Now, you may be familiar with the background. I I was thinking, I've been preaching Christmas sermons now close to 30 years, (laughs) and you kind of cover the same text every Christmas, right? Uh, so you, you, you are probably familiar with these, as I am, but I think there's something in here that I hadn't seen before. Joseph was betrothed. That uh, was very different than our modern engagements. It was a kind of marriage, except for you didn't consummate the marriage. You lived in separate houses. If you were going to break a betrothal, you had to get a certificate of divorce, which was a very big deal. And when Mary tells Joseph, Mary, Joseph probably was older, probably mid-20s, maybe even 30s, uh, Mary was probably 14 or 15, uh, about an 8th grader. And when, when Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant, he, he most likely thought she'd been unfaithful to him. We don't know, but that is, is a likely uh, uh, scenario. And the law demanded, was very clear in Deuteronomy, uh, that when, when this happened, a divorce needed to take place. And that could happen in one of two ways. The normal way to do that was a very public, very painful uh, act through the rabbi and the synagogue in which the, the woman usually, uh, ironically and sadly, uh, the man who committed the adultery with the woman seems to often get away with these things in some of the ancient cultures. Uh, but the woman was supposed to be shamed publicly through a public divorce. But there was another way that you could do it, and you could have a, a private divorce But the problem with a private divorce is that if Joseph went that route, he would carry some of the shame, uh, or a lot of the shame, with Mary. Remember, they're living in a small rural village of about 2,000 people, and the rest of their life, if he didn't distance himself from Mary, he would bear the shame of, uh, of some kind of an adulterous situation. Something had gone wrong. But that's what he decides to do. He decides to move forward in a very sensitive way towards this woman that he loves and arrange uh, a, a private divorce. And so one of the things that we could say about a righteous man is that he, he loves his people well. He cares for the people that are around him. And there, there's an interesting description of love here. It says that Joseph, being a righteous man was unwilling to put her to shame. Now, of all the things we could say about love, that's one that I've not thought of before. But here, in this context, righteousness looks like not wanting to put someone you care about to shame. Now, I, I had not seen that Greek word before, and, and so I uh, did a little digging today, and one of the things that I found out was a very rare word it's only used one other time in the New Testament, 
And to give you a feel for um, what, what Paul was, or rather Matthew was thinking of here, let me read it. It's from, from Colossians 3.15. And you don't need to turn there because we're not going to stay there long. Uh, Colossians 2.15. And this is that section where Paul is talking about Jesus defeating demonic powers. And in Colossians 2.15 he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now what, what, what he was talking about there was this uh, event that took place when Roman armies conquered an, another uh, army where they would stage what was called a triumph and they would take all the armies and the lead general and drag them through the streets of Rome while all the people cheered, and it was a public humiliation, a public mockery, a public shaming to assert uh, that you were the victor and, and they were the loser. And so what, what Matthew seems to be saying here is, is Joseph loved this woman so much that he did everything he could to not expose her, to not humiliate her, uh, to, to not cause people to disrespect her. So one thing we might, we might ask is, are we behaving righteously toward the people we love? And that, are we unwilling to shame them? Are we relating to our people in a way that exposes their weaknesses before others? That might be disrespectful or embarrassing? Are we relating to our people in a way that say, I don't respect you. You're not very smart. You don't measure up. You haven't turned out the way I'd hoped. I'm disappointed in you. I don't want to be with you. Now, it might be helpful to, to even ask that as we come together over the holiday period and we're together with with, with family, uh, it's very easy. Uh, it, it, whenever companies together and we're out of our familiar rhythms, it, it's very easy for I think all human beings to to move towards sarcasm and and jokes and and teasing and subtle put downs. Uh, so one of the things we might ask this holiday season is, am I loving my people well? Now, I think we parents are especially tasked with um, setting the example for this. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians. And I read this paragraph recently in a book called Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, How to Finally Really Grow Up. And, uh, of course, I've got that figured out, but I thought I might teach on it someday and share it with you. So I'm just reading the book for you, not for me. Um, This is a chapter for midlifers called The Family During the Second Half of Life. What would happen to our lives, our world, if the parent could unconditionally affirm the child? Saying in so many words, you are precious to us. You will always have our love and support. You are here to be who you are. Try never to hurt another, but never stop trying to become yourself as fully as you can. When you fall and fail, you are still loved by us and welcome to us but you are also here to leave us and to go onward toward your own destiny without having to worry about pleasing us. 
how history would change, how each child would be freed by the parent's courage to sacrifice his or her narcissistic needs in service to that child's joint but separate journey, how each parent would then be free to address the questions that life brings to him or her without living through the child, how each child could explore, experiment, falter, and regroup without shame, without self-derogation, armed always by the experience of love and support, which one may carry as food for the soul in the times of desolation and defeat that come to us all. But few parents are able to give this unconditional love to their children, having not received it themselves. You know, sometimes I think we, we hear big words like righteousness, and we, we think about the Pope or Billy Graham or, or some saint... Uh, we think about the, the capacity to, to have all the theological answers and pray great prayers. And in this little story, it's not about things like that. It's about simple little things like loving your people well by not shaming them. One of the interesting things about Joseph never says a word in the entire New Testament. One of the few biblical characters that never says anything. Quiet Joseph. Why is that significant? I think it's significant because we associate righteousness, godliness, holiness with people who talk a lot. Big speakers, people who pray great prayers, people who are always talking about the Lord. And and in this case, Joseph doesn't say a thing. Maybe righteousness has more to do with how we act than what we say. Well, second characteristic, the first characteristic of a righteous person is they love. The second is they hear. We're probably familiar with this part of the story, but let's revisit it again. Joseph has a dream. Now, we don't know much about Joseph's spirituality. We do know he, he, he is a descendant of uh, David, so he's Jewish. He's been raised in a synagogue. And I think it's safe to assume that his capacity to receive this dream means that this is a man that is open space in his heart to hear God. He had the categories, the orientation, the posture with which when God decided to speak, he didn't roll over. He, he knew it was God. So the angel of the Lord comes to him. It says, the child's from the Holy Spirit. Call him Jesus, which is the Greek word for Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And then says it's the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 7. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this, I was thinking about Spencer's excellent sermon uh, last week, which really I thought about all week. It was very, very good. And one of the points that uh, Spencer made on the third Sunday of Advent was he gently poked a little fun at a very popular book called Your Best Life Now which, as John the Baptist was uh, about to have his head cut off, (laughs) did not necessarily apply to him. And Spencer wisely said that following Christ might not lead you to your best life now. Uh, It might lead you to get your head cut off. But um, I think that's significant because so many times when we go to God in a crisis or a problem or a need or a betrayal or a disappointment, God doesn't miraculously change the situation. He changes your perspective on the situation. 
Now, that's not always true. I heard this week uh, in our, our guys group on, on Friday at noon, uh, Russ Smith, some of you know him, he comes here uh, quite a bit, and uh, his daughter-in-law had been in ICU for 62 days, uh, very terrible disease. He was driving up there. They said it was probably going to be the last night. They were preparing for her burial, and a friend of the family sent them uh, a prayer blanket. And the prayer blanket, I guess, I don't even know what a prayer blanket is. Um, I guess... I don't know, you pray with it or something. I don't know, I think it means people prayed over it or something like that. So so she get, he gets up there and he'd heard about the prayer blanket and the son who's so distraught says, it's in the box over there, I don't know what it is, I don't know what you do with it. And Russ says, well, open it up. Well, they open up the prayer blanket and uh, they take it over to the daughter-in-law, lay it on the daughter-in-law and she's got, you know, the, those machines that we all hate with all the numbers on them that usually say terrible things and if they didn't, you wouldn't be in the hospital. So the numbers are saying terrible things. Russ said this Friday afternoon, the moment they put the prayer blanket on the daughter-in-law who was supposed to die that night, all the numbers immediately reset to healthy and she was supposed to leave the hospital the next day. Now that's, yeah, that's, how about that, okay? God does that. He does that. He does that. He does that. Uh, prayer is not just kind of a, a, a silly exercise. Prayer changes things. I want us to hear that. But a lot of times, what he changes is how we think about a circumstance. And that's what happens here to, to Joseph. Um, there's nothing's going to change about this. His 14-year-old wife-to-be is pregnant, and she's going to stay pregnant. And he's going to deal with that the rest of his life. Nobody had written carols about it yet. At that point, it was just a hard thing to bear. But what God does when he creates space to hear from him is reframe what was happening and take it from a scandal to a story of hope and salvation. It's a beautiful thing. A friend told me this week, and boy, every year I hear this, he'd really been struggling with depression. Um, I know a lot of you have been talking with a number of you. Holidays are hard times. and he was, he kind of gotten away from God and, and finally decided, I just need to kind of create some space to be with God. And he sat down and, and laid open his heart, poured open his heart. And, and, and in Scripture, God spoke and reframed his situation. Didn't change a single thing, but reframed his situation, gave him a new perspective, and the depression lifted. That's what happens sometimes when we spend time with God. I, I, I ran across in this book a... Uh, a list of questions that we might explore in those moments when we open up our heart to God and we listen. Uh, What has brought you to this place in your journey? What gods, what forces, what family, what social environment has framed your reality, perhaps supported, perhaps constricted it? Whose life have you been living Why, even when things are going well, do things feel not quite right? Why does so much seem a disappointment, a betrayal, a bankruptcy of expectations? Why do you believe that you have to hide so much from others, from yourself? Why does life seem a script written elsewhere and you barely consulted, if at all? Why have you come to this book? This is the one about midlife. And why has it come to you now? Why does the idea of your soul trouble you and feel familiar as a long-lost companion? Why is the life you're living too small for the soul's desire? 
Why is now the time, if efforts to happen, for you to answer the summons of the soul, the invitation to a second larger life? Now, those aren't just um, midlife questions. Those are, those are the kind of things that we, we talk about and explore when we create a space in our life to hear from God, whether it's through a dream or scripture or worship or those kind of things. I think the principle is a righteous woman, a righteous man, Here's God. They, they open their story up to the reframing and the re-narrating of God so that they have a new perspective and have new hope. I love what the angel says, don't fear. Don't fear. One of the ways I think we overcome anxiety is when we take the things that give us anxiety give them to God, we hear from God, He reframes them in a more hopeful perspective. I don't know if you've, you've seen uh, the desolation of smog yet. Yet another disappointing uh, uh, edition of this, uh, in my opinion, of this wonderful book that uh, they should have done in one and not three. But anyway, it, it was still fun to watch. So Bilbo and the dwarves are in the dark, bewitched forest. A magic spell is over it. There's one path they can stay on. They're wandering off and off the path. They get more and more bewitched. They start angering and fussing each other. They get totally lost. Finally, Bilbo climbs a tree, gets on top of the tree's sunlight. He sees clearly again. He sees the mountain. He goes down below and leads them where they're supposed to go after a few spiders and trolls and orcs and things like that. Now, I thought it was a great picture of, of what can happen in our homes during Christmas. There was like some spell <laughs> that descends upon families as they all come together over the holidays. And we lose our way and get stuck and run into spidery things. But if you can take time to rise above and connect with Christ and see where the path leads you'll find hope and courage for the journey. Do you have a broken heart tonight? you received some bad news? Somebody betrayed you? Are you disappointed about how this year's been? Maybe the best thing you can do is just find some time to hear just create some space to listen and reframe the way you're thinking about all this. I thought of this Monday, got this email that you always hate to get. Uh, a, a friend I've known about 15 years uh, has pancreatic cancer. And um, he's about my age, a little older. And, you know, you just, you read those, those are the last things in the world you want anybody to struggle with, and you don't have to Google it more than a few minutes to realize, you know, it's not good. And the first part of the week, I, I just was in a funk, uh, very discouraged, you know, didn't know how to reach out to this, this brother. But about the end of the week, I got to spend a little time with some other folks that knew him and had been in relationship with him. And we spent some time in prayer. We spent some time in the Word. And after a conversation with these brothers, after a time of hearing, my friend still dying, 
But God had reframed his death from just a horrible tragedy to an opportunity to love and to pursue and to redeem. And now I have hope. I still hate it. But I'm not depressed about it anymore. So a righteous man loves and a righteous woman hears and lastly, a, a righteous person obeys. And that's how the story ends. God speaks. The angel of the Lord says, this is what I want you to do. Marry her. Joseph wakes up, does exactly what he's supposed to do. Never says a word. A righteous person obeys. One writer said, to be righteous is simply to obey the word of God. Righteousness is to do what God has said. Righteousness is doing the will of God promptly and simply. Now, I, I think we make this too complicated. I, I think we feel like we've got to have all these abstract theological questions solved and all of our intellectual problems solved and we need to know how to think about all the ethical issues of our day. And, 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 and at the end of the day, I think it's real, real simple. Love, hear, obey. And a lot of times I find when I'm, I have the privilege of walking with someone, a lot of times the conversation will go like this. Oh, this, I am so confused. This is so hard. I do not know what to do. And why does God let people go to hell in China? And, and I, why, why is suffering? And why was there the Holocaust? And what about creation and evolution? And how about homosexuality? And, and I'm just so confused. I don't know what to do. And you know, they actually know exactly what they're supposed to do. They don't want to do it. And so instead of just leaving the relationship that you know you're not supposed to be in, instead of turning towards a family member that you know you're supposed to pursue, instead of dealing with a long recurring bitterness towards your mother, instead of doing those simple things that every time you go to church, every time you open the scripture, every time you hear a song, every time you go to a stupid movie, the Lord says the same thing. Do this. Instead of focusing on that, oh, the, the heathen in Africa. Dog, what are we going to do about the heathen? I can't go on until I know the answer to what's going to happen to the heathen in Africa. I'm so sick of hearing about the heathen of Africa. I don't know what's going to happen to the heathen in Africa. I know this. If God told you to do something, you need to do it. Quit asking me about the heathen in Africa. I don't know. All right. Sheesh. So what obedience means is adjusting your life to the reframed vision for what's going on. And that's what happens when you, when you spend time with God. And again, it's real simple. It's real simple. I took out my journal and, and I looked at where I'd been this week and I had a couple of, of statements and it'll, it'll, it'll be as simple as this. It'll be, it'll be things where the Lord will say, stop, start, don't, wait, believe, turn towards, turn away from, accept. It's that kind of stuff. He's not going to ask most of us to give birth to the Messiah already been there, done. It's going to be the boring stuff. 
Someday I'm going to do a series on boredom. And maybe that's a midlife thing, too. I, I get really bored sometimes. I mean, with you, with me, with all the questions about the heathen in Africa. I get bored. And one of the things I think the Lord is saying, to me at least, is that spiritual growth is often not all that exciting or new. A lot of times it's as boring as continuing to work on that relationship that never, ever seems to get better. And I, you know, I try to read and I follow the internet and I love all the new things that are going on in the body of Christ and now there's, there's all these movements with, with names about explosions and torpedoes and, and people really excited and, and loud energy and loud music. And that's good. If you want that, that is good. I'm just too tired for that anymore. I just want to obey. And I, I think that's why we come here year after year, Christmas after Christmas, not to hear something new. I don't have anything new. Uh, There is no 2.0. I have nothing new. Just obey. Just obey. Love. Hear. Obey. Let's pray.